0: Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. Next year marks the 75th anniversary of the Administrative Procedure Act of 1946. And such a major anniversary is going to spark a lot of discussion about what Congress meant to accomplish and what we've learned since then. In fact, the Gray Center has organized an entire symposium on the subject with the George Mason Law Review, which you'll hear about in the months ahead. But next year also marks the 75th anniversary of the Legislative Reorganization Act of 1946, a law that fundamentally reformed Congress itself to better play its constitutional roles, as Congress saw it, in the post-war era amid the growing administrative state. What lessons should we draw from the fact that the same Congress enacted both the APA and the LRA? What light does each of those laws shed on each other and on Congress, Those are the subjects of a fascinating new Gray Center working paper by Joseph Postel, an associate professor of politics at Hillsdale College. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. His paper is titled The Decision of 1946, The Legislative Reorganization Act and the Administrative Procedure Act. It's available on the Gray Center's website, along with the other new working papers that we're discussing in this week's mini-series on Congress and the administrative state. And to discuss that paper... We're also joined by my colleague, Jeremy Rapkin, a professor here at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. His scholarly writings range across several subjects, including constitutional government and the administrative state. Jeremy, thanks for joining us today.
1: Good to be here.
0: Joe, let's begin uh, by giving an overview of your paper. It opens with these words. In the summer of 1946, Congress enacted two laws that served as the foundation of the modern administrative state. One of them is well-known to scholars of administrative law, that's the APA, the others to scholars of Congress. Why don't you tell us about that second law,
2: the Legislative Reorganization Act? Sure. Um, So the idea behind this paper was to try to bring these two monumental pieces of legislation together, and they're normally thought of uh, as not being connected to each other. So, you know, in the summer of 1946, the Administrative Procedure Act was was enacted, signed June 11th of that summer, and then uh, no more than two months later, the Legislative Reorganization Act comes about as well. Both of these laws were the subject of lengthy discussion and study. Uh, As most um, administrative law professors know, the APA was the product of years of study and contestation over the legitimacy of the administrative state. There's been really good scholarship, including a great article called Fierce Compromise, Uh, That's kind of the standard story of this. But the same thing happens with the Legislative Reorganization Act. There's years of study and committees formed by both Congress and by the American Political Science Association to study how to reform Congress in light of the rise of the administrative state as well. And it seems obvious that these two laws would have been thought of as somehow combined or uh, linked in terms of their purposes, or at least that they would interact with each other because they're both really about the same question. And when you read the legislative debates about both, both laws, the the debates are focused on the problem of the administrative state, that the emergence of the administrative state has threatened core values of American constitutionalism, that it has threatened Congress's role in the political system that it threatens to become arbitrary and become unaccountable. Um, And so the Legislative Reorganization Act, again, is not as well known maybe to uh, scholars outside the world of Congress, um, was really designed to put Congress in control of the administrative state. And its overarching accomplishment was a reorganization of the committee system and a reduction of the number of standing committees and uh, a charge to these standing committees to exercise what the law called continuous watchfulness over the administrative agencies, there were a lot of other elements to the law. Uh, some of them got uh, struck out during the amendment process, and um, I think some of those aspects of the law that were originally envisioned by the reformers behind the LRA were uh, really central also to to the vision behind it. And in some ways, the paper uh, then tells a story of failure. The The Legislative Reorganization Act really failed to accomplish what the reformers wanted it to accomplish. It did not put Congress back in control of the administrative state. Um, It did reorganize the committees, but it didn't provide any sort of mechanism for coordinating or um, putting Congress as a whole back in charge rather than these reorganized committees. And I think as a result of that, the APA comes in and tries to do a lot of the work over time that the LRA was supposed to accomplish. And so the rise of judicial review in the sixties and seventies, I think is in many ways linked to the failure of the LRA to adequately check administrative agencies. So that's a, maybe a brief synopsis of what the paper is arguing and, and the main themes.
0: Well, could you explore just, or explain just a little bit more what this reorganization was, the parts that did go into effect. We'll get to the parts that
2: ended up not being enacted, but how did they reorganize Congress? Yes, yeah, So The main um, accomplishment, and really in some ways the only accomplishment, was the end of the proliferation of committee jurisdiction. So um, Congress in this period is defined by its committee structure. Right before there's a famous uh, revolt in 1910 against the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Joseph Cannon, Uh, before 1910... Really, party leaders dominated what happened in Congress. The committees were subordinate to those party leaders, especially the Speaker of the House. After the Speaker is sort of dethroned in 1910, the committee chairs become extraordinarily powerful. And one of the major problems with this structure is that the committee chairs are chosen by seniority. So they're not really accountable to the Congress as a whole. Instead, it's basically if you are the most secure member of the majority party on a committee, you become its chair. And historically, what this meant was that because the Democratic Party ran Congress for most of this part of the 20th century, the most conservative Democrats from the South were the ones that chaired the committees. So the committees were these sort of unrepresentative structures that put checkpoints on what Congress wanted to accomplish, made Congress less accountable as a whole, and, and made the bureaucracy less accountable to Congress as a whole. So the streamlining of the committees was in Intended, I think, to weaken the chair's authority uh, and at least provide more resources. There were more staff resources given to the committees in the law to provide more resources for the committees to oversee and check the power of this emerging bureaucracy. But because other, these other elements weren't addressed in the law, it really didn't accomplish that goal. And what
0: were the major parts of the originally planned LRA that, that never came to be enacted?
2: Um, So at the very beginning stages, some of the reformers, this is um, the LRA, is informed by the American Political Science Association in many ways the same way that the APA was informed by the bar, the ABA. Uh, so it's the political scientists who are responsible for the LRA, and they really don't like the seniority principle. They want to provide other mechanisms f- for making the chairs accountable. Ironically, there's a lot of their proposals rotating six-year term limits for committee chairs or having the parties elect committee chairs by ballot were reforms that came about much later and are associated with people like Newt Gingrich uh, and the the post-Watergate Democratic Congress. Uh, so those the attack on seniority uh, and the chairs didn't really ever make it into the law. Everybody knew that couldn't make it through. Um, there were also proposals for creating centralized party planning committees, policy committees that would – sort of coordinate the overall policy of the party. This would promote what the APSA called responsible party government. Uh, There's a famous APSA um, report called towards a more responsible party system. Uh, And the political scientists really wanted a sort of Wilsonian nationalized two-party system. And they they thought these policy committees might accomplish that goal.
1: And are they happy now?
2: (laughs) Well, it turns out, right, they got what they wanted. Um, But you don't hear them talking about how great a responsible two-party system is anymore. Well, just one last question from me.
0: Uh, You you write in your paper about the failed promise of the LRA, and you've already alluded to that in this conversation. Uh, How did the LRA as enacted fall short
2: of of Congress's original hopes for it? Um, So... The things that didn't make it into the LRA were already disappointing to the uh, to the reformers. And interestingly, Speaker Sam Rayburn plays a pretty prominent role in preventing some of these reforms from making it into the final legislation, um, which is an interesting story in its own right. But also, even the provisions that were supposed to make committees more accountable in the LRA were not enforced. So t- to check the power of the committee chairs, they didn't go after the seniority principle, but they tried to at least say that the chairs had to hold regular meetings, they couldn't just adjourn them at will, they couldn't arbitrarily uh, decide what the agenda was on the committee, so that at least you'd have to hold regular hearings if you were the chair, and you'd have to allow markup sessions on a piece of legislation, you'd have to allow it to get reported out of the committee if it was popular enough to get reported out of the committee. And those at least would have weakened the power of the committee chairs, but essentially they were not enforced. So even those parts of the LRA that did make it in were ineffective. And in that
0: failure, then you see administrative law under the APA sort of evolving to
2: fill some of the gaps that were left behind. Yeah, I think that's the, it's somewhat speculative, but that's sort of the argument of the paper is that. If the LRA had actually put Congress in control of what the agencies were doing, you wouldn't have needed to expand judicial review under the APA the way that it took place in the 1960s and 1970s.
0: Now, in thinking about who to invite on to the podcast to comment on the paper, there's really nobody better to weigh in on this than my colleague Jeremy. He laughs, but the fact is, he before he came to Scalia Law School to teach law students, he taught at Cornell in the in the uh, government department, and has written many many things over the years on thinking through constitutional administration beyond just sort of the narrow confines of law. So, Jeremy, I'm very curious to hear any thoughts or, or questions you're, that you have about the paper.
1: You left out that um, I have visited Hillsdale College several times.
0: <laughs> well, how can I leave that out? <laughs> So, Jeremy, what were your reactions to the paper or any questions you might have?
1: Um, it's a great project. It's it's really intriguing. I haven't seen even a hint of this before, so it really gripped me. I mean, just like, wow, this is really something. We need to think about this. Um, and there are a couple of things I want to ask you about, which
3: are about why it is or isn't parallel
1: with the um, Administrative Procedure Act. But I want to start with something that's very, very basic, which it seems to me the paper is taking for granted. And you may understand something which um, people tuning into this podcast will not understand, because I think it doesn't correspond to our experience of recent times. And that is, you keep talking about oversight and who's going to do the oversight. But the assumption seems to be, as long as you get the right people doing the oversight, the oversight will be very powerful and will then um, determine who is in control because if Congress is doing oversight, then it will be in control. And I think somebody who has been just reading newspapers in the last few years or whatever they read, uh, you know, tweets, Um We'd be aware that um, we we have had many episodes in which congressional committees are doing oversight and they say, harumph, harumph, harumph. And in fact, they do more than that. They say, you are a disgrace and, and actually you are a traitor and what you have done is terrible. And either the Trump appointees or before that, the Obama appointees just kind of smile and say, "Uh, well, that's your opinion, Senator. That's your opinion, Congressman. And then they move on. So why did people think and why is it your sense that they were right to think or were they completely deluded in thinking that oversight was actually going to exert real leverage over the activities of administrative agencies?
2: Hmm. Um, I think that... They are right in that expectation. And the history of Congress up until recent decades does seem to confirm that to some extent. Um, the example that's always referred to here, which I think is useful, is John Dingle. The Dingle grams, right, that came from his committee over to um, to agencies, really were very effective in making the agencies responsive to the Congressional Committee rather than the president. And typically what, what we would say in terms of what tools Congress has to make sure that these agencies are responsive are they have two tools, right? Reauthorization of programs in at which moments they can take away or expand the powers of the agency. And then obviously the appropriations process. And that if Congress is really serious about those things, appropriating money through regular order and going through regular authorization of programs, the committees that have jurisdiction over those things will Dig into the problems. We'll look for places where they can um, improve what the agencies are doing, and we'll target those things in the process. And they'll use their oversight hearings to, to dig up all of that information, and they'll they'll use the the tools that they have to make sure that their their wishes are responded to.
1: What did they have that recent Congresses have lost?
2: That's a tough question to answer. I
1: That's think. First, just do do you agree with the premise of the question that Congress does not particularly intimidate um, regulatory commissioners or or, uh, cabinet secretaries?
2: I think so. In recent years, yes. I think we've seen so many examples of
1: this. That's what Um, happened. And and so it's an obvious question. What happened? And was it really about the way Congress is organized or is it more about? presidents became more active on the other side and backed up the administrators?
2: I don't think it's on the side of the presidency. I really think it is on the side of Congress. The obvious thing that's changed is that Congress has become much more partisan dominated rather than institutionally focused. So you used to have during the Dingle era, the sixties and the seventies, a couple of things were going on in Congress that aren't true today, right? One is that parties were heterogeneous They were composed of liberal and conservative elements in both parties, and that meant that you could get people working across partisan disagreements in order to accomplish common goals. And the other thing I think related to this, of course, is that the committees had more of an identity in that period of Congress. That the committees had, you know, people served on them for much longer periods of time. The chairs developed much more of an identity. Um, with the committee they had much more knowledge of what the committee had jurisdiction over which meant that they were more uh sort of dangerous to the bureaucrats than a president who was just coming in for a short period of time to try to manage a particular program um and so for those reasons congress used seemed to use its tools more effectively or at least the threats of using those tools were more credible um so those things are you know changes that have happened to Congress in the last 30 or 40 years that have reduced the effectiveness of oversight. And those seem to be not so much structural things, as you're noting, as it it has something to do with what's going on outside of Congress that has changed the way Congress works.
1: So it does seem that the partisanship has just overwhelmed everything, right? And, and members of committees think of themselves first by their party loyalty and second, if it is even second, as oh yeah, I'm interested in whatever it is—transportation, autos, something, right? Um, but also, it just seems to me we've we've had many many examples of committees confronting um, particular agencies, and the real issue is to embarrass the administration more than the agency. And so that reinforces the partisanship, right? Because the members then line up according to do they want to side with the president or against the president. And once you do that, it's not even
2: oversight anymore. Right. So a lot of what happens in the 70s, there's, a, there's another wave of reorganization in the 70s in Congress. There's a Legislative Reorganization Act of 1970, but then there's the big shot against the committees in the middle of the 1970s. And one of the things they do is they open up all the committee hearings to the public. That changes the entire nature of an oversight hearing. It makes it more susceptible to being what you're describing, right? A, a, an attack on the administration politically rather than a policy-focused policy focused Uh, attack on what an agency is doing. And so a lot of what's going on, really, the LRA doesn't work on the front end. It doesn't work for the first few decades after it's enacted. But even had it worked, what happened in the 1970s would have weakened everything that they had accomplished, had they actually accomplished something in 1946.
1: Yes. So I I want to ask you a couple of questions that just bring out the history of this and maybe something about how they thought and why their thinking was different. Um, so that seems to me the w- one of the prime motivations for your project here is the coincidence that this is the same Congress that does the APA. Right. And, of course, the APA had been in the works, you know, since 1938, right? Um, but this happened. So why is it that the same Congress takes up this legislative reorganization along with the APA, rather than saying,
2: let's get this started and spend 10 years thinking about it. Right. Well, I think probably, I mean, the LRA hadn't been incubated for 10 years like the APA had, right. but it, it wasn't completely new, right? The APSA had organized some uh, committees on, re- on reorganizing Congress over the previous years, There was the Joint Committee on the Reorganization of Congress, right, a few years before that. So it was maybe a four-year period of thinking this through rather than a 10-year period. But I think, well, I see actually a parallel between the two laws in terms of how much time was put into thinking about them.
1: And what I was really um, hoping you might uh, engage, I don't know what the right answer is, but it seems to me with the APA, the, the like obvious question is why do the Republicans go along since they have reason to believe that they are going to regain control of Congress if they just wait a few months, which in fact mm-hmm. does not happened. But they say, no, 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 let's do this. And you could ask a parallel question about the Legislative Reorganization Act. They could have been the drivers of it if they had waited, but they were content to say, let's all work this out together, which to me suggests a remarkable degree of you know, bipartisan cooperation. And and how do you account for that? Is it that there's a kind of good feeling in the aftermath of the war or there's good feeling because they realize there's going to be a changeover so that makes everyone a little bit more cautious and less partisan? Or What is that about?
2: Hmm. New
1: president?
2: That's a difficult question to answer. I don't know if I have a good answer to it. I think, um, yeah. Why wouldn't the Republicans, knowing that they were about to retake the chamber, both both houses? Now they may not have known that, but that's what happened.
1: Well, they had um, a good they had a good crack at it. They did know that.
2: Yeah. Now, in terms of the LRA, the the people who were most strongly behind it were the progressives. So all they had to do was convince Republican conservatives to agree to go along. The, the conservatives weren't the drivers of that reform. And in many ways, what was taken out had to do with Southern democratic conservatives yeah. opposing various things. Um, but the APA absolutely was a Republican, a conservative uh, bill that was um, really pressed through because of hostility to to FDR, to the new deal, to the bureaucracy.
1: I, I, I just offer you a suggestion. I don't know if it's right. It just- Reading about this, browsing in accounts from that era, it, it strikes me that people really did not want to go back to the 1930s. Mm-hmm. They thought that the 1930s had been just a little bit painful and ugly, and they wanted, to, they wanted the
2: post-war era to be a little bit more consensual. Right. I it mean, it that does fit with the way that the votes came out. In these two, two bills, right? The mm-hmm. APA doesn't even get a dissenting vote yeah. and the LRA is overwhelmingly passed by majorities yeah. here. And yeah. to us that looks striking, although it wasn't entirely inconsistent with what's going on in that period as a whole. Yeah.
1: So that, that, I want to raise now a different question, but it's related to like, the motivations. Uh, you set up this interesting parallel in the paper. The ABA was an important driver behind the APA, but then again the APSA or at least important members of it or committee of it. And may maybe you'd like to say something about h- how far we could really take that parallel. Because it strikes me that the ABA speaks for important constituencies whose careers are at stake like lawyers saying, wait, you can't have a process that that takes things out of the hands of lawyers. Mm -hmm. Whereas the political scientists, in the end, they're just a bunch of professors and they all have tenure anyway, so they don't have as much at stake and there aren't as many of them and people aren't listening to them because they're not actually doing things for clients the way the lawyers and the ABA are. So maybe this comparison is what it really
2: suggests is these things aren't quite analogous. Right, I think they aren't analogous in exactly the way you're describing. Um, the political scientists behind the LRA are much more progressive than than the bar, and also generally more elite. I guess you could say they were um, interested in making the process more scientific, more. Um, they wanted an efficient modern state and they saw this as a means to getting that which was certainly not the goal of the of the, of the ABA Now oh, wait a second
0: who who chaired the ABA's like famous report on on the reformation of administrative law like 10 years earlier
1: um, of Harvard yeah
0: right so Harvard. it was i mean it was it, it wasn't sort of a workaday lawyer doing it right it was was a workaday
1: lawyer but he was brought in so that they could have a kind of prestigious figure to elevate what was already somewhat of a popular movement, because there were a lot of people in the ABA behind this, which I I think is probably not quite right within the um, APSA.
0: Right. Jeremy, your first question actually raised an issue I was going to get to as well, but maybe from a slightly different angle, this question about reorganizing Congress for oversight. Reading Joe's paper, one of the things that struck, really jumped out at me was the fact that, yes, it was reorganizing for oversight, but as you suggested, a different kind of oversight. It was an oversight that was really mapped on, I mean, setting aside just partisan fireworks. It was really built for more than just sort of a check and balance. It was an oversight that was tied to a legislative agenda, right? it's a, a legislative agenda. Joe says in his paper at one point, um, Uh, Congress could only compete with the administrative state, they understood, if it organized itself to advance a legislative agenda of its own. This is one of the, I think, the the key insights of the paper was that Congress seemed to be thinking through how to organize itself to legislate on an ongoing basis in dialogue with or in competition with the administrative agencies.
1: This is is very central. Let me just add one thing before you... Yeah, please. No, please. which is what I was struck by in that count of the details was uh, the people in the APSA who were thinking about this thought, oh yeah, Congress needs to have reliable control. Can't be a bunch of POWs. It's got to be like, Administrative experts working for Congress. So, so then they sort of take away half of the point as far as the members of Congress are concerned. And then they say, what? There's going to be a director who's going to be nonpartisan, who's going to have merit-based appointments to these staffs? No, thank you, no. <laughs> then we will end up not controlling it, right? And so part of that is maybe naivete on the part of the APSA people making these proposals, but some of it maybe speaks to a kind of fundamental um, complication in this scheme, which is if you want Congress to compete with administrative expertise, you've got to give Congress administrative expertise, and then it isn't Congress anymore. Well, that was, that was
0: actually the other question I was going to raise, which is there, it seems to be Congress reorganizing Congress to look more like the administration,
2: Yes, right?
0: Centralized power, almost an an energetic executive, but, 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 but Congress, and it is, it is fascinating to see how the lesson in 46 seemed to be, we need to reshape Congress to look more like the FDR administration, which of course was, you fast forward to the 1990s, what was Newt Gingrich trying to do, if, if anything, trying to set himself up as kind of president of Congress or a parallel president who happened to be in Congress?
1: And, and just like one more paradox, of although it's, it's not really paradoxical, it's logical. This is what the um, APSA people tell Roosevelt in 1937. You need to have a streamlined administration which rises in a pyramid to the president. And the way to do this is to give the president a lot of staff in the white house. Mm -hmm. Right. And then have more uh, emphasis on expertise in a, uh, in a centralized process that will move all the agencies forward together. And now here we are basically 10 years later and again, these political scientists are saying, oh, yeah, you need to be centralized, right? And you need to move these things together, right? And they keep giving the same advice. And it's, I think, you know, it's uh, in both eras, it's rejected by Congress because they understand that the way would, like, we're about like politics and stuff, getting elected, log rolling, doing all that stuff we like to do.
0: Right. Yeah, Joe, if anything in there you want to react to, I'd, I'd be curious for your thoughts.
2: Yeah, I think this is all... Uh, Exactly right about the sort of underlying problem Congress faces, right? To the extent that it wants to regain control over the bureaucracy, it has to transform itself into something that is not really a Congress anymore. Um, And the connections to Gingrich, I think, are correct, that um, the idea that Congress needs to centralize its own leadership in order to adequately control the executive branch. I think that's an idea that the political scientists held very dear and they pressed that idea on the reforms. They couldn't get it through, but they wanted centralized leadership in Congress to offset the centralized leadership that they had advocated in the executive branch. That connection to the Brownlow committee, I think is, um, is, is actually quite important here. Um, and is not in the current version of the paper, but might become part of the paper's argument down the road. Um, I think, um, it's interesting that the APSA wanted to go to some more parliamentary style kinds of arrangements. So they proposed joint committees that would do this work as well to really overcome the clunkiness of Congress, the bicameralism of the of Congress and so forth. So really all of these reforms are designed to make Congress into something very different than what the LRA eventually did, which was to just reorganize it in a way, to look like the administrative state without the centralized leadership. The committee restructuring, which is what everybody knows, happened in the LRA, that, uh, that was accomplished. But without all of these other things that were central to the vision, and so it just turned out to be a sort of continuation of the old approach, right? A bunch of committees loosely doing some oversight, controlled by their chairs, and I think ultimately that's why the LRA just wasn't, what they envisioned it to be.
0: You you refer,
3: Oh, go ahead, Jeremy, please. Well, I I wanted to move on to something a little bit different. So if you want to keep it, no. So, uh, one of the real interesting points in the paper is, uh, the, the
1: development of the APA ends up replacing what, the architects of this legislative reform had originally envisioned. I, I want to ask you, just to go down one level of detail. Uh, but if you teach administrative law, or if you took administrative law, I think this will
3: like occur to people. Um, I get
1: if the agencies are doing rulemaking that congressional oversight could say like, yeah, no, that isn't the rule that we wanted. And I get that we have expanded the APA or elaborated the APA so that it puts more controls on rulemaking. But it seems to me, if you go back to 1946, uh, mostly what they're doing and mostly what they're arguing about when they're crafting the APA is actually formal hearings for adjudication. And if we are talking about oversight of adjudication, then it seems to me that this project of better oversight is actually at odds with the APA because the APA is trying to insulate adjudication from political pressure.
2: Hmm. Meaning just the separation of the functions within agencies among adjudicators. Well, and
1: then, then there's a lot of formalities which are imposed on hearings Right. E- even at the level of the hearing examiner, mm-hmm. um, which is all about making it look like a trial and therefore making it have the kind of uh, prestige of judicial process, or at least the independence of judicial process. It's kind of weird to then say, oh, let's have oversight of that. They would never have oversight of court proceedings. Right? Everyone would think that was abusive. But right. you could say a central purpose of the APA was to make agency hearings uh, insofar as they were about adjudication to be kind of judicialized.
0: Hmm. What if, for what it's worth, I really, this for me comes back to the point about the legislation mapped onto oversight, right? I think Jeremy's exactly right. that You, know, you wouldn't necessarily assume that Congress wanted Congress micromanaging adjudication. But if you're thinking about this as, looking further down the road, learning from the administrators and then writing laws, well, then hearing from administrators on what's going on in the adjudications might be useful to Congress, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Right, which is what they envisioned. They, even some of them go so far as to say, we need to have these liaison offices, basically on Capitol Hill, where the high-level officials in the departments are next door to the congressional, to, to the committee staff. And so they'll be constantly talking back and forth with each other. They're never quite clear what the subject of those conversations is. I think in part that's the question that, that Professor Ravkin's getting at here, right? Yeah. Are they going to be talking about the most recent case that they, you know, the most recent case that their uh, hearing examiner had to decide against somebody, you know, under the public utility Company Holding Act, or something like that, right? Um, and then, what do these people envision Congress's response to be? It can't be an intervention in the specific decision. Is it uh, Congress just saying, without doing anything official, "Hey, next time you decide a specific case under this provision, you probably ought to think of it this way instead of the way that you've been thinking of it"? That's Or do they really want new legislation coming out of these committees to correct the previous abuses? It's not totally clear to me what they were envisioning.
1: And and you might say that this story that you've told at some level of abstraction would be equally appropriate for appellate judges. I mean, Article 3, Court of Appeals judges who are interpreting congressional statutes. And then you call them in and say, Judge, whatever were you thinking? (laughs) How could we get to that interpretation? Please explain so we can fix it. And then I would never do that.
2: Right, right. Yeah, and so, again, it's it's not clear whether they even envision legislation coming out of that because the committees would have to send that legislation to the whole floor, get it enacted, and go through this whole process, which I suppose if you had centralized party policy planning committees, you could get that done. But now that you don't, it's really hard to get, sort of positive reforms, legislative reforms coming out of this process. So it, is, it does seem like it might lead to this sort of ad hoc communication. Uh, and again, the way they describe this, so the two reforms that they describe being the next stages, this is in books that, that the reformers, Galloway, um, Kefauver, some others, write books afterwards where they talk about what they want to do next. And they talk about having a question period on the floor of Congress where they're going to bring these people into the Congress almost like the parliament and, and have that sort of thing along with these liaison offices that they want to set up on Capitol Hill where the agencies now have offices in the same buildings as the staff do. And so it seems to me like it's going to create a lot of the problems that, that we're working, we're working over here in this discussion.
1: It's also funny that they constantly have this, uh, longing to be Parliament, because the most important thing about Parliament is that it doesn 't have much independent authority at all, and they 're saying ooh couldn 't we be a a edifying and inspiring debating chamber which has no actual power or authority why Why, why do you want to trade for that Because <laughs> very few of you went to Oxford or Cambridge or even Eton, so you 're not going to be that eloquent on the floor. <laughs>
2: Right, right. Yeah, they seem to love Parliament, but I think somehow that is how you put Congress in charge rather than making it much weaker than it has been in the past.
3: Today. Uh, and I
2: wonder if
1: any of their constituents share that enthusiasm.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, today, there's some talk about rethinking the budget process, the appropriations process, in order to map congressional oversight more uh, directly. Uh, to the the power of the purse, I'm just curious in the in the 46 Act and the the debates leading up to it, was there much thought given to the the appropriations process tying in with the legislative process and the oversight process?
2: Yeah, budgeting was central uh, in the conversations in the 46 Act. Um, it's something that's left out of this paper, only briefly alluded to because it would dramatically expand the paper to talk about it, but yeah it seems like they are in some ways envisioning retaking the power back through committees that focus on budgeting, which is what happens eventually in seventy four But at this time, you still have the sort of presidential budget model, which is coming out of the nineteen twenty one act and um you know the president has his budget offices and budget agencies, but the Congress doesn't have its, which again goes back to the question: is it that Congress has to structure? itself to create its own bureaucracy in order to regain control of the bureaucracy. Um, They talk a lot about this and the consensus is that the budget provisions of the 46 act were even greater failures than the rest of the act um, were completely useless. And that's why you needed the 74 budget act because the LRA was so ineffective in, in that context as well. So it was a priority for them and it seems like they couldn't figure out how to solve that problem either.
0: Well, we're almost out of time. Jeremy, do you have any closing thoughts before we go? Um,
3: So I I just want to say um, one thing that is worth exploring
1: here uh, just strikes me an important analogy between the LRA and the APA is that in both cases, it's responding to a sense that there's something really wrong here. And there's an awareness that it's something really deep and important, and it's really about the 20th century, and how's it going to go, the second half of it? I mean, they really have a sense of the stakes are very uh, profound. And then they don't really know what to do. And so they're saying, this is, this is a fundamental constitutional question. How about a little tinkering? That couldn't do any harm. Let's do that. There seems to be a kind of disproportion between the sense of the, the stakes and then the actual, what they're actually willing to do, which isn't very much.
2: Do you agree with that? Yes. Um, I think they all knew that was a problem. And so they, they described both laws as first steps. Yeah. The APA, the people on the floor said, this is a pioneer effort. We're starting out, and then we're going to push this further and, then, and further. And
1: then, and then, of course, they aren't followed, and you might infer they're not followed because they were able to agree on a few skeletal reforms that they did not agree on the trajectory they wanted to follow, and therefore they couldn't agree on even a second step.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: That implies that you know where you're going,
2: right? Which maybe they didn't. Right. So the the, <laughs> the consensus they accomplished on, on both of these laws was because they didn't do very much. Yeah. And then once you pushed a little further, yeah. the coalition would have divided and you wouldn't have gotten yeah. anything done. And the interesting yeah. thing about this just to add to the thrust of what you're saying is everybody described the efforts to enact the APA and the LRA as these Herculean multi-year, we had to study forever, and then we had to build the coalition very carefully. And yet, if you look at the votes, they pass very easily. So if that took that much effort to get those two things done, I think there were a lot of people that said, maybe it's just not worth the effort to address this major constitutional crisis
3: well, any further than we have. Also, I do think it
1: if the background concern is to deal with something really, really fundamental, damn, that's hard. <laughs> yeah. And mere congressmen are not very good at that.
2: <laughs> right. I, I
0: chuckled at the reference to a pioneer effort it's like it was a pioneer effort that meant to go to the west coast and they they all sort of split up in western maryland Um, (laughs) that's right uh Well, uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. I should tell our listeners, uh, uh, I alluded at the outset of this conversation to an upcoming George Mason Law Review Symposium on the the anniversary of the Administrative Procedure Act, and Jeremy is writing one of the papers on that focused on the the debates giving rise to the the APA's enactment. And so um, we're looking forward to that paper and and grateful that you're able to, to join this conversation. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank
1: you for inviting me. This was a really, very interesting discussion.
2: And Joe, do you have Thank you. And Joe, do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, no, just um, appreciated the conversation, appreciated the questions. Uh, looks like I have a little bit more uh, crafting to do in light of these, but uh, it's very, very enjoyable conversation. Some of it you can save for the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> as a, you know, as a, well. Thank you
0: very much, Joe, for for this. Our, our people who follow the Gray Center's work know that uh, Joe Postel has been one of the uh, the, the most uh, regular contributors to our work, writing papers on a variety of subjects, and we're always grateful for his contributions. Uh, Also, our listeners should look for his book, Bureaucracy in America, the Administrative State's Challenge to Constitutional Government. It was published three years ago, and it's just a wonderful history of so many of the things that we talk about here at the Center. So, Joe, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. And thanks to our audience, as always, for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Arbitrary and Capricious.